our scripture reading this evening. We have two of them. First will be from Matthew chapter 5, Matthew 5, verses 21 to 22. It's found on page 1029 of your pew Bibles. We will be reading the text from Luke later in the, in the service, so you can just turn to Matthew 5 at this time in your Bibles, as well as if you would take your forms and prayers book out in front of you and turn to Lord's Day 40. That's found on page 247, 247 in your forms and prayers book. Here we come, what is to the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. We read what God's word has to say about it in Matthew 5, as well as what the catechism is teaching and what scripture proclaims about this, this command of God. Let's ask for God's blessing in prayer. Lord, as we've been going through your law, we are reminded of your great character, reminded of your perfections, of your great being, for that is what the law is, a reflection of who you are, and we pray that as we go through it, as we do year by year, and in, and in repetition, that we would become more and more like you. Specifically this evening, we pray we would understand what your whole will is concerning the command not to murder and how deep that goes, how, how much work we have to do there, but as well, the, the great gospel truth that there was one murdered for us, and there was one put to death that we might live. And may both these things come out of our, our study of your word this evening, a growth in our own holiness, and a greater appreciation for the gospel. We ask this in your name. Amen. Matthew 5, verses 21 and 22. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. That's as far as we're going to read there, just those two verses gleaning what Jesus teaches about that commandment. Now we turn our attention to Lord's Day 40, page 247 of your Forms and Prayers book. Question asks, what is God's will for you in the sixth commandment? I am not to belittle, hate, insult, or kill my neighbor, not by my thoughts, my words, my look or gesture, and certainly not by actual deeds. And I am not to be party to this in others. Rather, I am to put away all desire for revenge. I am not to harm or recklessly endanger myself either. Prevention of murder is also why government is armed with a sword. Does this commandment refer only to murder? By forbidding murder, God teaches us that he hates the root of murder, envy, hatred, anger, vengefulness. In God's sight, all such are disguised forms of murder. Is it enough, then, that we do not murder our neighbor in any such way? No. By condemning envy, hatred, and anger, God wants us to love our neighbors as ourselves, to be patient, peace-loving, gentle, merciful, and friendly toward them, to protect them from harm as much as we can, and to do good, even to our enemies. Brothers and sisters, as we look at this commandment this evening, the difficulty of this command is not in comprehending it. It's not in trying to understand it. The lesson is not difficult. The difficulty is the application. 
I hesitated to even use the theme I put in your bulletins this evening and what I'm about to give you because it seemed, well, so duh. It seemed so simple. How else could you say it, that all forms of murder are rejected because God wants us to love our neighbors as ourselves? That's, that's really the, the lesson, as simply as we put it, can put it, all forms of murder are rejected because God would have us love our neighbors as ourselves. It's so simple. We don't trip over that understanding. We trip over the application. How to put it into effect. It isn't that we don't understand it. We do. It's, it's the doing of it that's hard, and we struggle to perform it. We struggle to perform what God desires of us. We struggle to perform what, what God wants. That's what's difficult, and that's what's hard. We are called to live according to a standard that Jesus kept, to live like him, to, to see how he walked this earth, to see how he treated others, and to do that. His love so great that he came to this earth, that he gave his life for his people, that he would die for others, that he would even die for his enemies. That's why he came, God so loved the world, and he came to save it, that, that Jesus died for us while we were still sinners, he died for us. What love that we are called to as well portray and to live. There's no commandment that receives greater acceptance around the globe than this. It's as universally accepted as a moral law can be. If you needed one example to say that the law of God's written on the hearts, or if there's one thing that almost everyone agrees with, no matter where they land on this globe, it would be this one. That you shouldn't just murder and take someone's life. Sure, there are exceptions. Sure, there are those who will argue about various things like euthanasia and abortion and suicide, and there's arguments that rage there. But by and large, the, the center of this commandment that you shall not murder, most would accept. It's rather telling, then, of the human heart and the human condition that such a law that has, that has wide acceptance, all would believe in that, is also one that's broken, and broken in its most severe form with regularity. You can't really read a newspaper. You can't really listen to something without hearing of some murder that's taken place, usually many of them. And it happens all the times. It happens in the cities. It happens in gangs. It happens in domestic violence. It happens because of rage. It happens because of jealousy. It happens on mass scales by unjust wars. It happens by governments and, and, to and tyrants. It happens all around murder. And despite the fact that we know it's wrong, for whatever reason, man is drawn to glamorize it, to put it forward, to, to be entertained by it, to, to watch it, and to see it. Hollywood has made a living putting that before our eyes, putting before our eyes such events, such murder, because we, we want to see it. It sells this horrible of sins taking someone's life, ending an image-bearer's life. In fact, though we clearly condemn murder, the sinful mind does draw to it. How many stories or games don't we have, don't we play, don't we, don't we contribute to where the hero is an assassin of some kind, where the body count rises to unbelievable numbers? How many action films' sole plot is a tale of retaliation, and, and Hollywood has made their living doing this, and they also make their living sort of trying to, to not fully say this is a murderer and, and justify it to a degree, justify why your main character that you can, can root for can go about and kill 50 people in one movie and why that's okay. Okay. 
I only say that to, to put before us that th this is the routineness in which this command is violated in our world and as well at, at, at what we're exposed to, what we see around so often. This resource, and so bear this in mind, this resource is 30 years old. 30 years old, it said this. By the time the average child finished elementary school, he or she would witness 8,000 televised murders, 100,000 acts of on-screen violence. 30 years ago. Those are staggering numbers. How many of us do contribute to that? How many of us partake of these things. This command forbids on all unlawful taking of life. And, and I just start there to, to raise the point before us. Are we, are we thinking? Are we aware of what we consume? We're using our consciences to be aware of what we put before our eyes. Or, or as we see these things, are, are we even thinking that this is a, it is despicable? What, it, what is happening in the world? Would we at least have that thought on our minds? This is a violation of that commandment. I would imagine all of us know it's wrong, but wouldn't have the thought in our, in our heads that this is a violation of the sixth commandment, blatantly so. This is murder. God's word calls us to exercise biblical wisdom, and it does so in many ways. We're going to look at this law this evening in two points. The first is what's prohibited. It's the negative. It's what you shall not do. And the second is the positive, what you're called to do in keeping this commandment. First, you shall not. And it prohibits all forms of murder. That's the lesson the catechism is trying to make from God's word. This commandment doesn't mean that it's no killing at all. God gives the government the sword. The catechism makes that point. We see that in Romans 13. The government has the sword. It's not as if any form of execution is wrong. They're given it for that purpose the government has the sword to wage just wars, and there are such things as just wars. There are wars in which the, the people of God can as well, as well take part in because there is such things as, as just wars. We're not pacifists. We don't believe that. We believe that there's self-defense. All these ways in which you can indeed defend yourself. The Bible doesn't even forbid self-defense of person, family, or even property. Exodus 22.2 says, If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. So in the Old Testament law, God made a distinction between what was wanton, blatant murder and, and someone who had broken in and it was night and, and you were protecting yourself, but... God's word is also very clear to, to show that where it can be avoided, it must be. And it's a last resort. Self-defense is permitted, but self-defense isn't the golden ticket. This is what Hollywood gets wrong. Self-defense isn't the golden ticket then to, to be Dirty Harry's or John Wick's to our heart's content. Just go out and violence, vigilante justice, that's what we can do. No, the government has the sword the Sixth Commandment is not just a command against, on, all, against killing the body fully. It's about the heart as well. That's what we read in Matthew 5, 21 and 22, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Strong words. Do you see there how much God, how much Jesus hates violence of any kind? Murder with our thoughts, gestures, words. 
Look at what's owed. That if you would call your brother you fool, that you would insult them, that you would kill them with your words, you will be liable to the hell of fire. What is that saying? God is so upset with that, that it's such a violation, that hell itself is the payment. That's how much God hates these things. And it would even extend to our words, it even extends to your thoughts. To gestures. Jesus' teaching makes clear to everyone that we're all these murderers. We're all these serial killers in that way. Clearly, there's a, a grade of, of sins. Jesus isn't saying it's, it's just as bad to call someone a fool as it is to go get a gun and blow them away. Well, certainly not. But they're in the same category of sin, of murder, Putting to death, what did you kill with your word? Did you, you killed their, their image, their honor? You, you sought to take away from an image bearer of, of, of something that was theirs. You sought to put it to death. Calvin wrote, Our neighbor bears the image of God. To use him, abuse him, or misuse him is to do violence to the person of God who images himself in every human soul. So it's being done because they're image bearers to then insult, belittle, treat, or, or at the very worst to actually murder them is to take an image bearer of God, someone he has put his own image on, and then to kill it. How wrong. Question and answer 106, does this commandment refer only to murder? By forbidding murder, God teaches us that he hates the root of murder, envy, hatred, anger, vengefulness. In God's sight, all such are disguised forms of murder. When, when, when your brother or sister takes your toy and you smack them upside the head because you're mad, there's a little tiny bit of murder. When you're driving in your car, and these are the classic examples we give, probably because it's so easy to do when you're driving in your car and someone cuts you off and you have a word to say or a thought to spare on that, you know that person who would do that, and there's a little bit of murder happens all the time. So clearly this command says to not murder physically, but I really want to apply that to our situation. Many of us are, are not, not in the, the situation where we're in danger of bodily harm from someone, where we're, we're, we're actually in danger of our lives. There are plenty of places in this world where they are, but, but, but for our church, that's not often where we do find ourselves. So how do we apply that? I want to read a, a quote. It's a longer quote that I'm taking from another URC pastor, but I think it really applies this well. It puts it in very very beautiful language to what is, is happening and how we should apply this commandment. This person says that in our own situation here in North America, we are more prone to have to deal with small enemies. Enemies, nevertheless, but small enemies. People who do us harm, but certainly not in the sense of taking our lives or taking our property or seeing us thrown in jail. But we face enemies of a different sort. We encounter people whose personality we intensely dislike. An unruly deacon or warden or bishop, a, a truly revolting relative, an employee or employer who specializes in insensitivity, rudeness, and general arrogance. A business competitor, more unscrupulous, not to say more profitable than you are. The teenager whose boorishness is exceeded only by his or her unkemptness. The elderly duffers who persist in making the same whining demands whenever you are in a hurry. 
The teachers who are so intoxicated by their own learning that they forget they are first of all called to teach students and not a subject. The students, so impressed by their own ability or if they come from certain cultures, so terrified by the shame of a low grade that they whine and wheedle for an A they have not earned. People with whom you have differed on some point or principle, who take all differences in a deeply personal way, or who nurture bitterness for decades, stroking their own self-righteousness and offended egos as they go. Insecure little people who try to tear down those who are even marginally more competent than they. The many who lust for power and call it principle. The arrogant who are convicted of their own brilliance, convinced of this and of the stupidity of everyone else. The list is easily enlarged. They are offensive, sometimes repulsive, especially when they belong to the same church. It often seems safest to leave by different doors, to cross the street when you see them approaching, or to find eminently sound reasons not to invite them to any of your social gatherings. And if, heaven forbid, you accidentally bump into such an enemy, the best defense is spectacularly English civility coupled with as hasty a retreat as elementary decency permits. After all, isn't niceness what is demanded in that situation? So what do you think? How many of you would say you have people in your life who fit that description? And it applies it well. But I would also want to take that quote and, and, and apply it in, in a slightly different way as well. How many of us are that? Not only how many of us face that, but how many of us are that? How many of us are those who stand in our kitchen and just, just talk about everything that's wrong with so-and-so? How many of us are those who get mad at the teacher who won't give us the grade we want? And so we tell all the students why this teacher's a poor teacher. There, there is no hiding. There's no hiding from it. We do it to those closest to us, perhaps more than anyone else. Murder them. But you say, yeah, but it's, we didn't take a knife and plunge it into them. No, but you did it in your thoughts and in your words. Those you should love the most. Those who you're closest to. Feel the weight of that sin. Feel how, how we just break it continuously. There's another area I want to, to turn attention. The catechism mentions this, and I want to, uh, to, to hit this to a bit of a degree we don't normally. That's in question and answer 40, that I am not to harm or recklessly endanger myself either. There's a growing issue in our world of self-harm, harm that we inflict upon us for a variety of reasons, and it needs to be dealt with. It needs to be dealt with that any type of, of attack upon even yourself violates this commandment as well. So it's, it's not only the small enemies we face, as that quote showed very well, but it's even to yourself are you applying this commandment and applying it correctly. The, the, the things like, like eating disorders and cutting and even suicides and all these things are on the rise. They're on the rise in the world. They're on the rise in the churches. Those who, who, who bear such a difficulty and those who have such a battle, and then what do they do? They, they even murder themselves to degrees. You see, we have the answer that the world doesn't. We have hope to offer, but it's a hard situation. It's a very difficult one. It's one that we have to be aware of, and even in ourselves. And, and before getting to those issues, I, just, I, I want to think of our own thoughts. 
Let's say this is probably the the lowest level of the self-harm that you could do to yourself, and that's when you run yourself down all the time. There's an appropriate way to, to run yourself down, let's say. And the appropriate way to do that is to look at your pride, to look at your sins, to, 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 to bring them before God and be sorry that you have them. There's an appropriate way to die to self and to put yourself down. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the person who, who hates, hates the way they look and struggles to look into a mirror and is just upset, upset about it who hates their personality, who hates these things about themselves, who struggles with that idea and runs themselves down and recklessly harms themselves, maybe not yet on on bigger levels that we'll get to in a moment, but even in your thoughts. God would not have you do that. God would not have you murder yourself. And your worth is is not in those things that, that trip you up or those things you hate about yourself. Your worth is in Jesus Christ. Your worth is in the image of God that he has put on you. You're, you're, you're made the way God would have you be made. And, and that's where we begin to answer these things, that you're not even to do that to yourself and, and not to cultivate that. Think of, think of things and, and, and wish you were better. Again, there's an appropriate way to do that and one that's very damaging. The appropriate way to do that is the one that's coming in the grace of Jesus Christ. It, it, it's knowing that in Christ there's answers. In Christ there's changes to sins. Then there's that whole other category of, of this epidemic. And, and they get to, to bigger issues. It, it doesn't just stay in the heart. I'm sure every one of us, to, to degrees, can, can understand that type of self-harm, those type of thoughts that we have about ourselves. But, but for others, it's, it's far more severe. It gets far worse. We have that answer to these things, even to the, the greater degrees of it. This commandment doesn't just tell you to stop. It doesn't just tell you that God commands you not to do these things to yourself but it provides in the whole interpretation of Scripture the reason behind it. The great joy that you have in God and in Him. You see, the message to the young girl who's been traumatized by social media and feels no self-worth is that this commandment is telling her, with, again, with the whole freight of God's word behind it, it tells her that, that not to murder herself, and it supplies for her understanding why, because her life is precious to God, it's special to him, and that his judgment is the only one that matters, and not the opinions of others. And though we have the answer, that that doesn't mean there won't be a struggle. It it is one that has to be fought. But there are those who, who go to these levels, even to that extreme end of suicide. A lot of what I'm about to say was taken from a sermon by Reverend Strange, Dr. Strange, who, who preached on that topic in relation to this commandment. We would all confess these things to be wrong, self-harm of any kind, suicide to be wrong. It's, it's, it's not to be done, but there are those we see even in our churches and churches like ours who do these things. I want to say is to dispel a false teaching, suicide is not an unpardonable sin. It's not a sin for which there's no forgiveness, and that needs to be said because there are those who will say, oh, if it's a suicide, it means that that person can't be forgiven because they weren't able to repent of it. 
And that's to misunderstand the gospel. We, don't, we aren't saved before God because we've been able to repent of all our sins. None of us will, none of us can. And if that's what was required, there would be no one who, who would be saved. Obviously, that's not to justify it, but it's to, to put away that type of false teaching. But what does the Bible present about self-harm and, and suicide? There are many, many examples in God's word of those who even did it, and it's always treated in a negative way. You can think of two. Saul committed suicide. Judas committed suicide. And they are never looked upon as worthy examples or, or legitimate alternatives. There's a difference as well between suicide and giving your life for the sake of another. There's a difference there. There, there, there are those who will attack Jesus and say, well, he, he committed suicide because he, he had the power to save himself. Well, he was sacrificing himself to save. That's not suicide. Suicide is never looked on as a legitimate answer. But there are any who hear this and who are struggling with these types of things. Perhaps it's not on the level of suicide. Perhaps it is. But, but anything in between, I want you to know this, that these responses are not legitimate Purposeful self-harm is wrong because it destroys the image of God and it will only ever hurt. As twisted as it sounds, people turn to these things and, 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 and seek some kind of release there, even in the hurt, but it only ever hurts and it only ever gets worse to pursue those things. And if you're struggling with those types of thoughts and things, there are answers, there is help, and those paths are not the ones to pursue there's deliverance there. It will only ever hurt you. It's not, it's not loving to God because he loves the way he has made you. It's not loving to your family because of the harm you bring them. And even in those extreme cases of, of those who, who want to end their lives for it, you will not, you will not make your loved one's lives easier by doing that. It doesn't put an end to it. Heard it said, Suicide is an irreversible attempt to fix a temporary problem. It's an irreversible attempt to fix a temporary problem. You see, it, it doesn't fix it, but it's irreversible. And there's always an answer. Jesus always provides an answer and gives hope and gives comfort and gives the gospel to those who need it. In fact, there was a book written by those who had attempted this by jumping from the Golden Gate Bridge, but they survived. And, and those who wrote this book all had said that immediately after they jumped, they regretted that decision. Think about that. We also have comfort here, too. You're not alone in your struggles. Certainly you're not alone in the churches and those who are alive now who face the same things, but even in God's Word. Moses, David, Elijah, Paul, plenty others, reached low points in life where they were at, the, at, at very dangerous places. Even Elijah, Elijah is maybe the best example. Elijah literally asked that God would take his life, that, he, that God would end it, would stop it. We can reach these low points, but what happened in these examples, God was there they cried out to God and he answered. And these examples teach us that the appropriate response is to turn to the Lord and to see in that him there is help. 
As, as hopeless as it may seem right now, there is help there, there is worth there. In those examples, what happens? Think of Elijah. Elijah flees to the desert. He flees and runs away from his duty. And there's an angel that God sends to sustain him, to give him food, to give him such miraculous food that it sustains him again on his journey for many days and nights without sustenance to come to the mountain of God, to come to him where he again falls before the Lord and God comes to him and gently corrects and provides the answer and say, Elijah, why are you here? Why have you come here? There's a task for you. And then he, he strengthens him. He, he resends him out. He upholds him. And that's what God does to all his people. And that God, that's what God will certainly do for you as well. You have help, all of you. And, and again, it's, it's on the entire spectrum here of this struggle. You have shepherds. You have elders. You have myself. Come to us. Talk to us. And if, and if we can't provide the, the specific help you need, we will get it for you. It's important to say that. Do we think? Do you think, oh, oh, pastors, those things going on in our church? I will be completely honest with you. I don't know if there is all of that going on, but it needs to be said. It needs to be said because this is what God's word would teach. It would say, don't murder out there and don't murder in here. Jesus is Lord in all areas personally, in your own life, and in others. And Jesus owns everyone's life, those whom we can't go and murder by word, thought, or gesture, and your own. You don't have the right, you don't have the authority of your life. It was given to you by God. And what a blessing that that is. Now let's look at the, the positive, the positive of what this commandment prescribes for us to do. And this is when I want to read the lesson of the Good Samaritan. A very familiar lesson to all of us from Luke, Luke chapter 10, Luke 10 verses 25 through 37. It says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he sent, set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and, looked, and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. There's the example. There's the positives. And there's actually not a lot that we need to add to that. It is such a, a clear illustration, a clear example. It speaks to itself. It isn't enough. It isn't enough that we, we don't just... Just not call them names, not give them wrong gestures, not murder them in our, in our hearts. 
That isn't enough. It's that we show them love. That's how we keep it. That's how we fulfill it. In this story, you see the priest and the Levite, those who should know better, those who should be the prime examples of, of loving people of God. And they fail. They fail to do it. They fail to, to love their neighbor. They fail to attend to the needs and care of one God put in their path, in their, in their way. This parable Jesus tells is a case study for how God would have us apply this commandment, how we are to love. So just look at, at what it takes. Look at what it takes to keep this commandment, to show love to your neighbor. Compassion. It takes compassion. It takes a heart that sees and, and, and desires to help. But your heart goes out to them. It means that you, you have a sense of love for them, even, and as the parable shows, a Samaritan to likely who was an enemy, a Jew, one of these people, one, they didn't mix, they didn't, they didn't see each other as, as friends, but as those they were opposed to. Compassion takes hands-on work, binding wounds, helping, getting dirty. People of God, we can't love our neighbor without hands-on work. It isn't enough. It isn't enough to just do the, the simple thing. It isn't enough to, to take the easiest, most convenient route for us. It takes sacrifice. It takes personal expense. Look at what he gave, what the Samaritan gave, and, and that he would, he would continue to provide for him. It took lost time. Lost time. I wonder if you've had this experience like I have. This, this parable always comes to my mind when you're driving down the road and there's a car. There's a car off on the side of the road, and, and you have the thought, should I stop and see if everything's okay? Especially if something looks, something looks off, something looks bad. And, and it's amazing how many, how many thoughts come to tell you why you shouldn't stop. It's just amazing. If I can't do that, someone else will. They're probably fine. Are they this or that? I'm not saying be unwise with how you deal with strangers, but just using that as an illustration, it's very easy to talk yourself out of compassion, to talk yourself out of loving others. Lost time. Our time is so much to us. It takes sacrifice of oneself. It, it takes being inconvenienced. Oh, we hate being inconvenienced. We even use that term. Oh, it's just, it's just, I'm not upset. It's just very inconvenient, right? We say, we say those type of things all the time. We, if we're going to love, if we're going to keep this commandment, it's, it's not enough that we treat others cordially, that we're willing to be inconvenienced. We're, we're willing to be, to be sacrificial to them. It also takes planning. It takes future thoughts. Look for the plans for his prolonged care. He was so concerned that he didn't just take the immediate need. He also provided for the next steps that might be needed there. He went above and beyond. And we might think, oh, you're doing well. You're doing very well to just stop and, and check on him. Is everything okay? And maybe you're even doing better if you bind the wounds and give him some water. Maybe you've even done that much better to bring him to someone else to help, but to, to, to do this level of care. It's love. And Jesus tells us to go and do likewise. That's how he ends it. He tells that lawyer, the one tripping him up, the one trying to make him fail, you go and do likewise. You love like this. It's interesting that Jesus is really, not saying this is what the parable is, is saying right there, but in illustration form, Jesus has both happened to him. He's both characters. 
He's the good Samaritan. He's the one who comes down from heaven. He comes, comes and, and gets, exchanges glory by assuming a human nature. He, he takes sacrifice. He comes to this earth to die for his enemies. He is that. That's the love he's telling them to have. He does it. But he's also the one who is mistreated. He's also the one murdered. He's the one who has those who should know better. Levites, priests, put him to death. That's, Jesus fulfills all these things. He's the one who gets mistreated, but he's the one who shows this love. This is the love that Jesus has. Going and doing likewise is going to do what Christ did. It's, it's imitating him. We see how far short we fall when we realize that. We are to love like Christ because it is in loving your neighbor, but you're loving Christ by doing it. We talked about the last commandment in the fifth commandment, that it, when you're honoring authorities, you're not really concerned about the specific authority there. You are, but, but really you're serving Christ. Really you're honoring God by honoring them. When you're loving your enemies... The chances are that you're, you, it isn't going to like end in this amazing way. It could be that they are still your enemies and will be to the day that you both die. And so what's the point? It's not in that end result, though often God rewards our, our meager efforts. The reason we're doing that is because by loving the, 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 the stranger on the road who needs help is because we're loving Jesus, because we're loving him. And, and that should make it easier for us to love the unlovely. And that long quote we read, what, what does that mean? It means that, that relative that everyone finds repulsive. It's that person that's just obnoxious and proud that you would love such as them. Because what you understand is that you are that. You are something so unlovely, so undeserving that, that Jesus has loved and loved you, and, and because you love him, you will legitimately love them and show them that love. And that student who's arrogant, or that teacher who's pompous, you bear with them. Treat them with respect, even when the entire class might not. Or you're the teacher who takes that student no one else cares about because of his pride, and you try to correct and help and mold when no one else would take any care or love to, to stoop down to someone no one else wants to deal with. This law means nothing to us without that gospel side. But it is the good news of the gospel that then not only reveals how far we fall short, but, but that great joy we have that we can go out, as Jesus says, and do likewise and show the love of Christ to all. And so we seek we seek to, to follow all forms of this. We, we, re, we reject all forms of murder. Physical murder of others, what we see in the culture, what we see in, in entertainment and games, we reject that. We, we reject even the gestures and looks and words and, and the way we could speak about others. We reject murdering of self. And we love the Lord Jesus Christ. Seek forgiveness of your failures and seek growth in your obedience, honor life, not only the life God is giving you, but the life he has given to others. Be like God, because in, in showing this love, you're being exactly like who he is.
Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you and we ask that you would help us to have such love. And even Jesus' words at the end of that, that parable and that interaction, to go and do likewise, may we be the very ones to go and do likewise. We pray that you would help us, help all of us here. We encounter the opportunities to show love every day. We also encounter the opportunities to murder every day. And we ask that we would avoid and, and, and shun all forms of murder, but as well that we would promote and find ourselves growing and bearing fruit in all forms of love. We ask this for the, the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.